you are listening to Girovagando, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Giro d'Italia. Today we are in Salerno. Okay, it doesn't look like anything's broken for now, but we're going to check in this evening and then we'll make a statement this evening. But for now, we've nothing else to say. Thank you. Well, Brian, buonasera. Good evening from Salerno. The voice we heard there at the start of the episode was Phil Lowe, the pseudo quick step press officer. There was a lot of kerfuffle as you can imagine around the pseudo quick step bus this evening and we went back to the press room pretty much empty-handed apart from that statement that Remco Avonapol was going to be checked over tonight of course he's well multiple crashes two crashes they are the story of the day really aren't they as well as Caden Gross victory but Brian first of all how are you well thank you Daniel uh, well you and I were probably one of the few <laughs> men who didn't crash today Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. We're in the, um, it's just like the, the the bustle, hustle and bustle of of Salerno here. Uh, ordering an aperitivo because we're recording Love this quite Falangina. exactly local white wine. But we are recording this quite late today because it was uh, there's a lot to get through. Yeah, there was. Uh, Falangina. Uh, there, incidentally, there is a Falangina on our Girovagando selection available from Divine Sellers. Um, you can find information about that on our social media channels, uh, divinesellers.com. Brian, we've seen a lot of water today, haven't we? Almost as much water as was on the well, the water menu. Um, in the restaurant we ate at yesterday, um, a bit of a fancy restaurant, wasn't it? We. We Not a particularly pleasant way of No, it wasn't particularly dining experience, but yeah. yeah, there was a water menu, two pages. And the funniest thing about it was they were very run-of-the-mill mineral waters, most of them. Yeah. Um, some of them at extortionate prices. And there was all sorts of um, statistics listed alongside the different waters, things you really didn't need to know, the sort of temperature at which they were extracted and so on and so forth. But yeah. I would um, have liked the executive water summary, so just yes. like, didn't have to, so many to pick from. Yes. But Brian, you mentioned that a lot of riders, well, struggled to stay upright today. Um, we are in Salerno, and Salerno, not too much of a rich cycling heritage not many of the cities down south are however um, there is a significant link between Salerno and the Giro d'Italia there have been of stages here of course in the past your countryman and friend Rolf Sorensen won here in the 90s but one of Salerno's fam most famous sons was a writer and poet called Alfonso Gatto and um, very famous won lots of literary prizes in Italy he covered the Giro d'Italia in 1947 and 48, shared a car with Vasco Prattolini, another extremely illustrious Italian writer. Um, and Alfonso Gatto was, was extraordinary among Giro d'Italia journalists. Why? Because he couldn't ride a bike. Um, in fact, this was his first piece. This is, I'm just going to read a couple of lines from his first piece in 19... 
um, 47, just uh, as he was em about to embark on his first Giro d'Italia. I'm going to let you into a secret. I must be the only journalist here who doesn't know how to ride a bike. Shame on you, you'll say. I've been telling myself the same thing long before today, but what a boon it is for our newspaper. I'll be able to share every one of my emotions with you in Servizio Esclusivo, my wonderful events and incidents that my colleagues won't even take seriously, and my unvarnished awe for those blessed boys who'll be able to fly on two wheels, as though on the wings of angels. Well, a lot of the riders in the Giro d'Italia in 2023 Giro d'Italia were flying, um, but not in the way that they would have liked today. Uh, no, all, all kinds of crashes, and uh, we're probably, probably going to talk about that potentially also in the next couple of days, because it doesn't look like the weather's going to be a lot better. It certainly doesn't. And Brian, I should also have said, Alfonso Gatto. Gatto, of course, means cat. We're going to talk quite a lot about pets, animals, domestic animals, in this episode for re reasons that will become clear any moment for those who haven't already seen the stage. Brian, I think it's time for the tale of the tapper. It's time for the tale of the tapper. Away you go, Brian. Thank you, Daniel. So stage five of the Giro d'Italia, 171 kilometers from Atripalda to Salerno here on the Mediterranean coast. It started in very rainy conditions and the weather predictions weren't very optimistic for the rest of the day. Three riders didn't have to worry about that, and those were Valerio Conti of Corotec, who was a, did not DNS today uh, because of a hip fracture yesterday. The two other non-starters were Raymond Simkeldang of Alpecin de Koenig and Remy Rochas of Cofidis. Four riders uh, attacked from the beginning. It started with a pretty hard climb, and one of those four riders was Thibaut Pino, and he was there for the points. The three other riders were there for the breakaway. So once uh, that was established, all hell broke loose. There was a very early crash, uh, actually for two riders in the breakaway, Martin Marcellusi of uh, Bardiani and Stefano Gandin, who's been very active so far in this race for Corotec. But uh, very early, so 20 kilometers into the race, uh, a crash caused everyone to hold their breath. A dog, what looked to me to be a corgi, uh, caused a crash of uh, several riders and one of them who ended up sitting on the road for quite a bit was Remco Evenepoel. And you and I were driving into Salerno just at, as uh, uh, as that happened, and we were quite worried that that would actually be the end of the Giro because he was. it took him quite a while for him to get up again. But eventually he gave the thumbs up to the Rye cameraman and a uh, bit of a sigh of relief for all of us. It would have been a real shame. So with the three guys up the road, it wasn't really to be a, a successful breakaway. It, looked quite early as if Trek, DSM, who were doing the bulk of the work, getting a little bit of help from Sudal Quickstep uh, as well. They had a clear in intention to keep the breakaway in check and uh, at some point, actually at 82 kilometers to go, the trio only had a minute and a half. With that situation, I think everyone was sort of pretty content to let the other teams do the work. Uh, the last attack came from Sam Samuele Soccerato of um, Bardiani. Uh, but with 25k uh, to go, it was sort of at the end of the road for the breakaway. However, they did sort of give him a little bit more, a little second lease of life. Uh, but just as he was about to get caught with 7k to go, there was another big, uh, well, even bigger crash. And lots of riders uh, went down, including some of the favorites amongst them, Roglic, Geraint Thomas. And we sort of thought, well, okay, now... They will, they will probably get reorganized and riders will, will, will fight to get back. Uh, they, 
they weren't going that fast paced and it actually seemed like there was a group that basically got away after that crash. But with um, just after three kilometers to go, another crash, and that was actually almost only Remco hitting ground at this point. And my theory is he was slowing down because he passed the three kilometer sign, he wants to stay out of trouble. He swerved a little bit to the left, uh, didn't stay in his line, and behind him came uh, Alex, Alex Kirsch, who tried to avoid him, but eventually just clipped him from behind. Um, we can talk about whose fault it was, but I'm not too sure that Alex Kirsch can be, can be faulted for that one. Relatively small group to fight it out for the for the stage win. Caden Groves did a smart thing in moving to the right, staying away from the from the wind off the coast, and that actually meant that Mess Peterson got blocked in a little bit. Stage win to Caden Groves, Jonathan Meelan second, Mess Peterson third, and a very very spectacular and I don't mean that in a in a good way crash on the finish line, where Mark Cavendish rear wheel slipped and he went first to one side and then to the other side and actually tumbled across the, the finish line. Uh, so that was the, the tail of the tapa. It was we were quite, I was at least I was quite keen to get confirmation for the, for the GC and no one uh, of, of the guys in the top 10 lost time today. So also a sigh of relief after such a crash mart stage. Well, Brian, it was an extremely eventful day. I was down at the team buses. I saw Alex Kirsch, you talked about his role in Remco's second crash. He actually he tried to pay a, a diplomatic visit to the Sudal Quickstep bus and he was sort of sent away not because anyone was particularly upset with him but they sort of said uh, I guess he was there to apologise or at least to see that Remco was okay and he was sort of sent away reassured he seemed to be reassured anyway that everything was okay and that's quite standard I, I often I've, I've even overheard in the, in the in the press room that oh you know he went to apologise and it's not always they you know you you go because you see someone crest and you are somehow part of that crest. So it's, I think it's quite normal that you go and, and check up on that rider. I mean, they're competitors, but they're also colleagues. Uh, but I, also, I actually think when Remco looks through the footage, he was visibly very angry. And, and you, you couldn't hold that against him. That was When you crash twice on, a, on what you think will be a relatively easy stage for him, at least, then, of course, he gets upset. But I, I think once he calms down, he'll and obviously once he knows that he's okay and gets the confirmation from the team doctor... I think he's, he will be okay with Alex Kirsch as well. Yeah, we heard some rumours, didn't we, in the press room this evening that they might be going to the hotel for checks. Not sure if that's the case. Um, Remco, I saw him come in. I would say the mood around the team bus was one of slight concern rather than great alarm. There were still sort of fist bumps and, you know, he still took the time to have a quick debrief with his coach, Kern Pelgrim. And as far as well, visible damage, there was a little peephole um, in an unfortunate position just in, on his backside. Um, but that was about it as far as sort of torn lycra was concerned. He was quite lucky or he was quite wise to that. He was pretty well wrapped up early in the stage, wasn't he? Certainly. Yeah, it was. And um, consequently, the crash or the injuries maybe weren't as bad as they but, might ordinarily have been. But also, when you think of it, this is this is the most important race of the year for Evan Nepal, and thus the most important race for his team. And and the minute something like this happens, everyone just stops, and you you get this scare because you're all the hours and all the investments, everything they put into this project, you you you, it's, you, you get this sinking feeling that oh my God, is it just going to end like like this? So it's a it's a very tense moment for a for a team when something like that happens. The Cycling Podcast at the 2023 Giro d'Italia is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. 
fueled by science. The cycling podcast coverage of the Giro d'Italia is sponsored by Science in Sport and during this Giro we've been talking to their riders about their fueling routines and I wanted to know from Ben Swift what his thoughts were in any given stage. How does he plan his fueling throughout the course of the race? We often hear from the sports directors that the basic information they're giving to the riders is to remember to eat and drink. It sounds really obvious but in the intense heat of racing it's the first thing that gets forgotten so what is in ben swift's mind when he rolls out of the start and what is his nutrition strategy in the race generally with me because you need to it's about consistency and just the way that i have my sort of like garmin set up where i can look at stuff i only have i generally use the map page so you can see what's coming and then i have like the the power and distance So instead of using sort of like time, I use like the distance of sort of like every 15K trying to, depending on how the fueling strategy is, but if it's high, uh, try and do that. But then if I know there's a big climb coming up or you almost have to fuel for the demands that are coming up. But as a general guidance, I'll use that 15K as a marker because I know that'll be roughly every 20 minutes. But if it's a more intense day, sometimes you can't and... That's when the the different products come into hand. You know, if we know if it's, let's say, crosswinds, for instance, it's going to be near enough impossible to eat. So you take more of the high carb drink or then you take more of a gel base, you know, where it's like it's easy and quick to get get it in there. And then again, with like certain climbs, say you're having a big climb at the start, you want to take as little with you because you know that you've maybe got a feed at the top. So taking something slightly more at the start and then you try and have one drink or something that's got a bit in there you know it's just it's almost like looking at the demands of the day and the immediate demands and then forward planning around it to fuel your ride go to scienceinsport.com non è il primo cane che vediamo libero in giro in mezzo al gruppo questo è un problema che secondo me Va risolto ma non è facile risolverlo. Ti riferisci solo in questa tappa o era già successo? No, era già successo, è già successo anche le tappe scorse che abbiamo trovato qualche cane in mezzo alle strade, però Quindi... è brutto cadere così, però dai. Well, Brian, that voice belonged to Davide Ballerini. I said that Quickstep, or I think we alluded to the fact that Quickstep weren't, well, they weren't commenting. We heard Phil Lowe, their spokesperson, say that they weren't going to comment tonight. Davide Ballerini did say a few things. He, of course, was the rider who caused the crash inadvertently, with the dog caused the crash. Ballerini then crashed. And what he was saying there to Chiro and me and a couple of others was that it wasn't the first dog they've seen. Stray dog or loose dog, they've seen in the middle of the peloton. Um, over the last few days it, he said it's a problem that needs to be fixed but it's not easy to fix um, but of course it's not pleasant to crash like that he said but Remco seems okay I was a bit shell-shocked because I caused him to crash I hit the dog slid then it was a domino effect behind me but let's see so that was the first crash now um, on Twitter if you'll indulge me for a minute Brian, um, I drew, uh, I noticed the parallel between this and an f- infamous crash in the Giro d'Italia on the Valico di Chiunzi, 
close to here in 1997. The victim on that occasion, and actually the peloton is going to go over the valley called the Kyunsi tomorrow. The victim on that occasion was Marco Pantani. He had, he had crashed in Milano-Torino in 1995, looked as though his career might be over, but he did come back in 96. And then in the 97 Giro, he had high hopes. Stage eight was to cover the Tirreni. Where, where we're staying tonight. Where we're staying tonight. And what happened? Well, uh, a cat, at the time it was said it was a black cat, which is very unlucky in Italian in Italy. Well, and uh, also in southern Italy, they're so superstitious. Exactly. Other outlets said it was a grey cat. Felice Puttini, the Swiss rider, apparently hit it and then brought down Pantani behind him. Pantani there was sort of, well, pushed, cajoled to the finish line by his teammates, riders like Gianni Bugno. Anyway, our good friend Lizzie Banks, um, host of the cycling podcast Femina and, well, sometime host of the Femina and also service course, she asked me whether we knew what happened to the cat. Well, let me tell you, Brian, I do know what happened to the cat. And the cat was called Puffy. You have my attention now. Yeah, the cat was called Puffy. It was a Siamese cat, and sadly, and I'm not being prestigious here because I'm a cat lover as well, um, it died a few days later. Um, how do I know this? Because in March, in the town where it occurred, Tramonti, um, a plaque was unveiled in homage to the incident on Pantani, one of what must now be hundreds of Pantani monuments and plaques scattered throughout Italy. The inauguration was attended by Gianni Bugno. So it wasn't for the cat? No, it's, uh, the picture you'll see there, if we go there tomorrow, is Pantani, not, not the cat, not Puffy. Um, Gianni Bugno went to the ceremony because um, he was one of the ones, as I said, who tried to sort of push Pantani to the finish line that day. Um, Pantani did pull out of that Giro. And who else was there? Well, the owner of the cat, the owner of Puffy, Danilo Amato, was nine years old at the time in 1997. Nowadays, he works for a, an energy company, and in his spare time, he volunteers, uh, works on the maintenance and restoration of trekking paths on the Amalfi Coast, where we'll be tomorrow. And, um, and he said that after the crash, after the incident, the local community turned on him and his family. They said they should have been taking better care of their cat and they shouldn't have let it out on the road and this was unfortunate ironic because he and his family were big Pantani fans um, another footnote small footnote if you'll indulge me for just a, a few more seconds Brian um, I said you're into was, 10 minutes said, about this now I said this was in a place called Tramonti well Tramonti's claims to fame include having been the birthplace of pizza now yeah, I think you probably know what's coming we've talked a lot about the origins of Italian delicacies in the last few days. There are none. In my podcast, Imbroglio, the other day, uh, which featured Alberto Grandi, the professor, the, the, the Italian food heretic from the University of Parma. Well, I, I put this to Alberto this afternoon. Is, could Tramonti really have been the place where pizza was born in? Uh, they claim, or there are claims on various websites, the Middle Ages. Um, Alberto replied, are you joking? Tramonti was a, was a microscopic place um, back then. Um, well, it's not like a pizza, pizza takes up a lot of space. Pizza was, was, if pizza was made there, it was made in the same way as it was everywhere else on the Mediterranean. They certainly didn't put mozzarella on it or pomodoro or tomato. Um, they were ingredients that were only added in the, in the 20th century. Um, in Napoli and the rest of Cam the rest of Campania, I think you. Sh you I'm not taking you to Naples to Napoli tomorrow, <laughs> with you having that conversation with anyone. If you ask that question in the pizzeria or state that claim, 
I'm, I don't. I'm not gonna. Yeah, I'm not. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna have to disassociate myself Brian, with you. I think it's too dangerous. Before I embarked on that very long and meandering parenthesis, I think we were in 2023 and we were talking about Remco Evenable's crash, first crash today, and dogs on the course. I, sp- I suppose the key question, being serious for a moment, not that we yeah, were yeah. being facetious earlier, um, was based on what we saw. How is it going to affect Remco? All of this. Based on what we know, we, we don't know much, but based on what we do know and what we saw, how is it going to affect him? I mean, the, the worst case scenario is that, he, that he's broken something, but it, it certainly doesn't look like it. And, you know, like you mentioned, you saw him at the bus, he had a debrief with his coach and everything. So I doubt that's the case. But no one crashes twice without it being feeling quite stiff the day after. They probably have a pretty intense evening in front of them once they've confirmed that he's okay and just you know, and structurally with his bones and everything but you stiffen up a lot you know the, the, these are not warm stages either you know it's cold and and it the tough thing about crashing when you're a gc rider is you you can't go out next day and be overcautious you can't you'll stiffen up on the bike you'll you'll lose your competitive edge in some of those situations and these next stages especially tomorrow you know after that we go into the higher high mountains down here but tomorrow is a really tricky stage and tomorrow with the weather being like this has is potentially even more da- more dangerous in my opinion so it's uh, yeah it's it's tough it's um, but it's kind of the name of the game in, in these races and unfortunately here where you know not all the roads are that well maintained and there could be oil spills and and various things that 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 just make it a lot more dangerous and i think you know <laughs> If if beer slippery, any road in Naples is dangerous because they've been partying their face off basically ever since they won the Scudetto last week. And they will have been unsettled, won't they, Sudal Quickstep? I mean, they may already have felt a little unsettled yesterday when Ilan van Wilder and Jan Hurt had a tricky day on the stage of Lago Lacino. We'll talk a bit more about that later. But well, well, just briefly on that, we always say that you know there's accumulated fatigue and this Giro is difficult because it's hard from the beginning. But it's it's very hard for those domestiques as well. It's not like they have you know they they can rest at any point on these stages. Every stage is a GC stage in that sense, and we saw that today. Some of them might actually work harder today than they would have on any other stage because it it it's just absolute. Every alarm bell rings once your leader is on the ground. And Brian Remco, well, well we'll go back to Remco in a minute, but he wasn't the only person to crash of. Uh, of course and um, Primoz Roglic also crashed now I saw Primoz Roglic come into the bus compound and he looked in pretty fine fettle he was in good mood at the finish line I know he spoke to a couple of journalists and said he was very relieved to get through you know what I mean uh? and also when he got to the bus paddock um, as I say he looked very limber Brian how do I know this because he went the wrong way to the bus paddock and he ended up behind some barriers and he simply vaulted over them um, which, was, them. which was quite extraordinary um, but he has also crashed let's you know let's not ignore that and let's not forget that um, if Remco is stiff tomorrow then Primoz Roglic may also be stiff and he may also be struggling who knows well, I mean, if anything, you, if you can say anything about Roglic, it's like he's, he's seen the ground from above before at very high speed being a ski jumper. So maybe he has some, some techniques. I mean, boy, has he crashed a lot in, uh, in various big races. But 
Yeah, let's hope that all the favorites, if any rider, and I'm also curious to hear if Mark Cavendish is okay tonight. Cause well, Brian, I got a little bit of information from inside the Astana camp, shall we say. Um, the word is that Cavendish has got a big cut on his leg, but might have a slightly sore knee, but he seems to be okay. Um, yes, it was, well, it was carnage, wasn't it? I spoke to a couple of riders, a couple of people in teams who were very relieved that they were a long way behind um, or, or the pileups, the various pileups when they happened. And it's one of these days which sort of calls into question where it's best to be in the peloton. I mean, I think the whole peloton was braced for these stages to be treacherous when they saw the weather forecast. And you have to make a decision, don't you, about where you're going to be positioned in the peloton. On Rai television, on Italian television, they were sort of singing Remco's praises for having been at the front when that crash occurred, I think, was seven kilometers to go but he wasn't able to avoid the second one. And there is a large amount of luck involved, isn't there? Um, Roglic was lucky that he had, I think it was Eduardo Affini, wasn't it? Well, who uh, brought maybe him back. Roglic was also lucky that a crash happened later on yes. because it meant that, you know, there yes. were riders waiting for Remco, there were other riders coming back. So, and there aren't 10 very strong sprint trains in this Giro d'Italia. No, not at all. And we, we, we saw that again today. It's, it's been some rather gnarly finishes in that sense, and we haven't really seen a... Yeah, strangely enough, the most normal sprint almost was the one that Jonathan Milan won, which wasn't by any means just, you know, standard sprint to the finish line. Brian, before we talk about Caden Groves, um, shall we have today's Chiacchierata del Giorno? Because it does relate to some of the topics we've already discussed, and it was with... Jack Haig, who was one of the few riders to venture into the mix zone this morning in a very wet Atripalda. So here's Jack Haig, Bahrain Victorious' leader, speaking to me this morning. La chiacchierata del giorno. The team wag of the day. Jack, you don't look thrilled about the weather. Have you asked many riders this question? <laughs> I'm pretty sure everyone will say the same thing. Uh, no, it's not great, and I think uh, we might have a few more of these days coming up as well. Just tell us about your Giro so far. You obviously lost those 19 seconds on the second day, but how are the legs? Uh, yesterday was nice to sort of get a bit of confidence. The last climb was not super hard, but we still had quite a small group at the finish there, and it wasn't, the feeling wasn't crazy hard for myself, so that was nice. Obviously, the 19 seconds on the other sprint stage was a little bit annoying. And to be honest, it's even more frustrating because when it doesn't really make sense from the organizers to narrow the road from four until three when we have a three kilometer rule, yeah, it's quite annoying. But yeah, it's, it's how it is. The new CPA president, Adam Hansen, has talked about the possibility of the 3K rule being extended to 5K. Do you have any strong feelings either way? I think if it becomes five kilometers, yeah, it doesn't really change the situation. It only makes the time a bit better. I don't think there's anything that makes it worse to change the five kilometers. And I'm not sure it will change too much, but there might be just a slight, slight little bit of less stress inside the last five kilometers that happens. Because in the end, you still can't lose time. It's not as if you can sit up, but you can be a little bit more relaxed. Because you, you see it now, you get the three kilometers to go, and a lot, I think a lot of the GC riders breathe a bit of a sigh of relief. And I, if that happens at five kilometers to go, it's maybe a little, little bit better. Yeah, five. And then maybe if there's special circumstances, the option to make it a little bit longer. Like, for example, today, we're going to have a narrowing from four until three. Maybe let's have an option there that if there is something like this, that it can be extended one or two kilometers. So we start at five. And then if there's something a little bit dangerous at 
six kilometers to go, then okay, let's look at trying to extend it to six. And just finally, tactically, Jack, yesterday you were tried to attack quick step early. Were you surprised by that? Was it a good move? To be honest, yesterday was a bit interesting. Uh, I'm not really sure what quick step were doing either because in the end they chased hard on the climb and then they went quite hard on both downhills and especially the second downhill they ran quite hard and then they just stopped at the bottom to take off their clothes so it was a little bit uh strange but uh, i think it put quicks under pressure quite a bit and well van wilder struggled hurt struggled i mean how strong are they looking generally i think when it arrives to the proper mountain stages and especially the final week remco might find himself quite isolated and it was quite easy to see ineos have by far the strongest team by far. I think they had even uh, Swift and Puccio at the bottom with like 20 kilometers to go yesterday. So that was more numbers than any other team had. Well, Brian, uh, first of all, I should apologize for the slightly substandard sound quality on that interview. Well, the, I should apologize on the Giro d'Italia's behalf and RCS, the organizer's behalf, for the very heavy bass in the mix zone this morning, which makes broadcast interviews pretty challenging, um, as you heard there. But some interesting points from Jack Haig in relation to the three-kilometer rule, whether it should be extended. Uh, my fear is that then it becomes a bit of a movable feast. And, you know, I could imagine a situation where it's five kilometers, but then on a particular day, a crash happens at six kilometers, and there is a groundswell of pressure and opinion from direct sportifs. They go to the commissaires, and it's sort of... It's changed and moved around on a bit of an ad hoc basis. Another interesting point Jack Haig made there well, was about Remco's team, wasn't it? And the vulnerability that he has always see, um, already seen sorry, in Remco's team, which we all saw yesterday, didn't we? Yeah, yesterday was, was very clear. And <clears throat> the, when I was seeing that yesterday, I thought that was quite worrying because some of it could have been down to the fact that he had to chase back early in the race you know he was caught in the second half and they had to burn some matches to bring him back but if he's isolated that early compared to the other favorite teams and some of them have actually have two cards to play in in the final uh i'm think i think he's inclined to to if if they if they corner him when he's isolated i think he's he's inclined to attack and he might actually have to do that earlier than he wanted to and with that i mean if if remco has to go out and attack to defend on gran sasso which is the day after tomorrow the long long climb where I doubt he'll have any teammates at the end. He'll, he'll gain time, but he'll also have to worry about the rest of the race. How, you know, how is he going to defend the jersey if he gets it back? I, I'm pretty certain he'll get it back no later than the TT, because that TT is so long that he should be able to take away time from who's ever in front of him at that point, especially after the first big mountain stage. So it is quite worrying, but it's also great for the race, because you... you you look at Remco and he's, he's the outright favorite. He's stronger in every discipline than most of the others. And this, this uh, issue with his team, is, is, it, it's the, maybe it's the one thing that could save the excitement of the race, whether we like it or not, because, uh, yeah, he's, he's, they're simply not good enough on, on the climbs. But he's had more use of them in other situations. He's lucky not to have a bunch of climbers on the stage like today or potentially tomorrow where they have to protect him on not, not flat roads but in, in dangerous almost classic type situations. Yeah, you just wonder about how well some of those guys are actually going. Guys like Cataneo, who at his best is a top 10 rider in the Tour de France or the fringes of the top 10 in the Tour de France. Van Wilder at his best is of a similar standard 
uh, for Vecca as well. But um, a couple of them don't look as though they're in the best form. Jan here, we mentioned, struggled in the conditions yesterday, with the conditions yesterday. So that is a little bit of a concern. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why... Lefebvre has been bad-mouthing Philippe because he'd probably rather see him go to another team and free up some budget to, to get himself some well, serious this help. Was a, this was a theme, supposedly, around about Vuelta time last year, the end of the Vuelta, when Remco... Um, it was clear that Remco was going to win the Vuelta and there were already conversations about who was coming, who, who were they going to reinforce the team with. Um, they added a couple of riders, but it still looks a little bit inexperienced and brittle in some respects. Um, Brian, we should just talk about the stage winner, Caden Groves. When he left... Um, what is now Jaco Alula at the end of last year. There were a few who expressed some confusion, bewilderment, because he was going to a team that was that was stacked with fast riders. Philipson, um, well, Malia left at the end of last year, but they've got other options as well. And the reason that he cited for leaving Jaco was that he, he wanted opportunities. He wanted opportunities, and well, he he has been vindicated, hasn't he? And he looks not only very fast on flat finishes like today's but he's impressed a lot of people with his climbing ability which sort of belies his build because if you were to look at him you would say that is a guy it's a classic sprinter who, who will struggle to get over a motorway bridge but that's not the case by not, no means i mean he's 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 not a jonathan milan but no no one but jonathan milan is I like his way of heard today. I heard today, Brian um, might be going to. Well, I think he's leaving Bahrain victorious oh. at the end of the year, and I think he might end up at Trek Segafredo. But well, no, that's just a tip from me. That's just a prediction. Good for Ken Groves. He's not going where he is. That would destroy our, the point we just tried to establish. I like Caden Groves' style of sprinting. I like how he positions himself in uh, in those finals. He's a smart rider, and it's not. He's not yet, at least, not a super sprinter. He's not. It's, his top speed that wins, at, at least not yet, wins in those races. It's his, today, he was super well positioned. He took with, with, with nothing illegal in what he did, how he, how he boxed in Mas Peterson. Uh, he, he just seems to like get it right. And I, I, I'm really impressed with him. And um, there's a lot of similar uh, sprinters around. And it's also in a, in a Giro like this where there aren't any super sprinters. I don't think we can say Gavidia is, is a super sprinter that can just outsprint anyone. Uh, at he crashed, didn't he, today? He crashed today as well. So it's... Uh, and don't, don't forget that he rides, they are now a World Tour team. So they have to ride the three Grand Tours. And they, and they, they need a pretty flexible lineup for all those three. So I, I think he's, he's obviously made a, a wise choice because they has the team support. Brian, let's wind back the clock a little... A little bit earlier than usual in the episodes, let's go back to around about lunchtime and my traditional, now traditional, cappuccino break with none other than Lionel Burney. It's past 11, time for my cappuccino break. La pausa cappuccino con Lionel Burney. Dopo le 11. Lionel, no Italian today. No Italian today, no. No, no, why, why would we? It's, um, well, it's Watford kind of weather. It is. So. <laughs> Steady now. Steady Wet, now. For, Watford kind of weather for the next 10 days. Very alarming. Very concerning. Wetford. Uh, Wetford. Yes, Wetford. Uh, Rye Television, the Italian state broadcaster that shows the race every day here. I mean, they dedicated about 15 minutes earlier to talking about the evolution of the weather conditions over the next 10 days and there might be a little bit of sun tomorrow and on a few other days but generally it's looking bleak very bleak 
Yeah, everybody in their wet weather gear. Basically, the peloton, two-thirds of it, wearing black jerseys by the looks of it today, including Remco Evenepoel, who is getting to wear the rainbow bands, but not the proper white world champions jersey with the rainbow bands. Instead, a black rain jacket with the rainbow was, bands. Was he, was he inviting misfortune, tempting fate by wearing the black jersey in a race where, of course, the last ride on general classification used to be denoted by a black jersey? Indeed. Well, there's about 75 black jerseys I can see on the screen at the moment as they head to the finish. Um, I've got a really important question for you, Daniel, arising from yesterday's podcast. When you were speaking to Larry Warbass of AG2R Citroën, we heard Mark Cavendish ride past and shout at the pair of you, but I couldn't make out what he was shouting. And a few listeners have asked, do you know? Is is it repeatable? Well, it was something about a crash. It was something about a crash. And I tell you what, if you can wait a few more minutes, we'll have the answer or a form, an answer of sorts to that question in today's in today's instalment of La Rensando. Excellent stuff. So, Excellent stuff. Sticking just with, hold on. Sticking with AG2R Citroën, obviously they had a, a great day yesterday, Aurelion Pare-Pentre winning the stage for them, uh, but they also lost a rider, Paul Lapera, um, who was in fact in the break on stage two and wore the King of the Mountains jersey as a day, uh, for a day as a result of that breakaway. Uh, Lapera out feeling unwell, possibly weather-related. I mean, the the wet weather, cold conditions will uh, add another layer of um, hazard for the riders to deal with. And, uh, well, more riders pulling out. Uh, Valerio Conti uh, was a non-starter this morning as well, wasn't he? So the Giro is beginning to, to shed riders as the first week reaches its kind of middle point. Wednesday is hump day, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I feel the mood is generally quite down in the peloton. Um, I think everyone is is slightly depressed uh, about the weather forecast in particular, Uh, especially when they look ahead, as I said, to what's coming, what they've got coming over the next few days. Um, There are a few there are a few long faces this morning um, at the start in uh, Tripalda. Yeah, not surprising. It's you know one-off day of bad weather, fine. But when it sets in like it's forecast to do, it does uh, lead to a bit of a grey spectacle when really we associate the Jura with that kind of vibrancy that we've talked about earlier on in the race. But the, the listeners are not downbeat. They're enjoying the racing. Uh, some lovely feedback for your first episode of Kilometre Zero, Daniel. Uh, somebody called Viltrio um, posted an acronym which stands for yet another time the cycling podcast explains Italy better than Italians do, which I thought was nice. Um, I'm not sure about that, but we're going we're gonna to debunk, I think we're going to debunk another myth with Alberto Grandi later in today's episode, actually, and it relates to Marco Pantani very tenuously. Anyway, that's very nice to hear. Thank you for that. The second episode of Kilometre Zero went out this morning for Friends of the Podcast. It's with Cohn Pelgrim, the man who is behind Remco Evenepoel, basically his coach at uh, Sudal Quickstep. And uh, a very interesting listen as well. But we've also had a question from a listener. Scott Jeffrey has travelled all the way from Perth, I'm assuming in Australia rather than Perth in Scotland. Uh, but either way, made a, a long or a very long trip to see the Giro d'Italia. He says, it's the first time ever at a bike race. Wondering if you've got any tips for a spectator. It's going to be in Napoli tomorrow for stage six. Well, my uh, advice to anyone watching a bike race is 
always to uh, you know see it well once and when the stage start and finish are in the same town as they are in Napoli it gives a great opportunity to go and you know have a look around the team bus area spot lots of riders uh, go away and have a nice lunch find a bar with the race on the tv and then come back down to the finish and uh, you've got plenty of time scott to work out the logistics for that alternatively go and find a climb there's a climb just before sorrento tomorrow's stage and this advice really goes for anyone who's going off to watch a stage of a grand tour my especially the first time my uh, advice is always to have one really good memorable um, site of the race so hopefully Scott you'll enjoy your day in Napoli tomorrow yes Lionel I would echo all of that various different ways to skin this particular cat uh, lots of feline references in today's pod I know animal references but if he's a football fan for example might be a, an idea to be in Naples and still celebrating Los Scudetto, the football league title that was won at the weekend. Um, football fever is still very much gripping Napoli. So if you, you head into the Quartieri Spagnoli, that's probably going to be the hub of celebrations that's still going on. Uh, could have a pizza or if he's on a climb, try to find a, a restaurant or a bar where they're showing the race as well that you can duck into because you might need some shelter tomorrow. Um, there, there could definitely be some showers. But um, I'm sure we'll have a good day, as we will, Lionel. Oh, well, I hope so. Yeah, I should just say, I mean, the Cycling Podcast does not condone or encourage the skinning of cats. You know, we, we got in trouble <laughs> once for just, just for feeding cats crisps. I mean, that, that's bad enough. So, uh, no, it's just a, just a metaphor, isn't it, Daniel? Just a metaphor. It is. It is. It is. <laughs> well, yeah, have a great day, the pair of you. Lionel, we'll catch up tomorrow. Indeed. Thanks a lot. Well, Brian, we touched there, or I touched with Lionel on Larry Warbass's, well, his, him being heckled by Mark Cavendish at the finish yesterday. And I promised some form of explanation. Um, well, that gives us the perfect prompt for today's instalment of La Ranzando. Take it away, Larry. La Ranzando, a postcard from Italy with Larry Warbass. Oh, Larry, over there I can see your nemesis, Mark Cavendish, who, who oh, yeah. accused you of causing a crash yesterday. What was all that about? Was there a crash yesterday? No, 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 no. He just likes messing with me. So uh, he's always yelling at me in the peloton just for good fun. So uh, it's funny, you know. Oh, the locks you guys get up to. Um, how were the celebrations last night? Uh, they were calm. So, you know, I mean, it was cool. We were really happy uh, for our rally on. But, uh, yeah, we didn't do any crazy celebrating, that's for sure. How would you characterize the generally celebrations in French teams compared to the other teams you've been in? I mean, it's all pretty much the same now. No, no, no. I think they're pretty happy and, uh, you know, a little chica chica cheek thing, uh, some yelling and, uh, yeah, that's it. But, you know, maybe a little speech. Same like every team. Well, Larry, you've got to get to work in a second, but just sum up the mood on the bus this morning, seeing the weather and knowing how difficult this start is going to be. Uh, yeah, it looks like a better stage for fish than for us, but, uh, you know, everyone knows, like, it's the same for everyone, so should be fine. There's an Italian, a very famous Italian pop group called the Nuclear Tactical Penguins, so they were playing it a minute ago. It's weather for penguins, isn't it? It is weather for penguins, yeah. Bella non ci innamora, non me facci. 
With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. La tappa di domani e la cena di ieri. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's dinner. Well, Brian, I alluded to our dinner last night, the two-page water menu. Um, there was foam involved. Always, it's always a worrying sign when you see foam, anything with foam on it on the menu. There were tasting menus, and the food was was good. Um, the service was not quite as efficient. I mean, as we were basically outnumbered by staff. Yes, and that's that's generally a worry when you're at least for them it should be. Yeah, it's just. Can you remember what you had? I had, um, we had like we had hazelnut and lentil, which was really nice. Amuse bouche, yeah, that was really nice, and which I was had, good. Um, oh, I had yeah. a starter with the calamari. <laughs> we were told we were very hungry last night, very very hungry, and it was it was quite late. We were hungry at this yes, point, I think. And as we waited for our drinks, we also asked whether we could have some bread, and we were told that the chef didn't. He interpreted bread um, as something that was to be eaten with the first course and not you couldn't you, you couldn't have it they were the exact words yeah and we informed the staff that we interpreted bread in a different way yeah <laughs> which yeah. was the cause of some mirth um yes but brian um it was it was an interesting experience i mean that was it was interesting also for me because we, we stayed at a winery you know, uh, san gregorio which is a huge uh, part of the wine production here in this area i'm not going to bore you with all the details i probably did last night but so that was that was interesting. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to tonight, where I have a feeling we'll have something, something heartier, a bit Brian. More, yeah, exactly. Something exactly. Much also, more. like with this weather, you need something a little more comfort food. Definitely. And we had some comfort comfort oh, food at lunchtime. Did. We had a lovely pizza. We're in pizza country now. Probably more talk about that tomorrow. Careful. We had some fritto, misto, Careful. lots Careful. of fried food at lunchtime as well. <laughs> Brian, let's talk about Naples tomorrow. Before we do, should we talk about Naples, the city, briefly? Yes. Let's hear from none other than well, who else? But Naples' favourite son. Naples' favourite, another one, another favourite son. There's always a favourite son in every episode of the podcast. And um, this one's Naples' favourite son is Chiro Scognamidio. Now I spoke to Chiro yesterday about what it means to be Neapolitan and the sense one has of one's own identity when one grows up in Naples. So we're going to hear Chiro talking about uh, maybe a, a slightly stereotyped image of Naples and the way that follows you around Italy, if you are from Naples. And then we're going to hear from John Foote, the, um, our friend, our cultural guru, um, author of multiple books about Italy, about the changing face of Naples. Uh, because uh, Naples gives uh, really... Uh, 
in both direction really strong emotions um, to everyone. I understood immediately, um, suddenly, immediately, then uh, when a person uh, comes uh, to Italy and to Naples, can love Naples for a lot of beauties and for a lot of resources, but can also hate Naples for the problems that are in the city. But it's difficult that you find a person that saw Naples in his life and uh, it doesn't feel anything inside him. So uh, it's a kind of mixture of sensations. Yeah, I think that Neapolitan Renaissance, which kind of started in the 90s, and there was a lot of talk about it. There's quite a lot of criticism about this idea because was, wasn't Napoli really changing? There's still large pockets of poverty and, and quite striking pockets of poverty. But certainly the, the renaissance of that city is, is quite extraordinary, I think. For example, the building of an underground line with very striking architecture and artworks. Um, it's become this... I mean, it always was a tourist destination, but it's become this kind of obligatory place on the map, you know, kind of added to Venice, Rome, the Venice, Rome, Florence axis. Mm. And I think that a lot of that is actually, quite strangely, the, the novels of Elena Ferrante, which have really, you know, are, have been read around the world and the, and the TV programme that's made out of that. And also, bizarrely, Gomorrah. I mean, it's, there have been a lot of TV, pro- which you wouldn't think would make you want to go to Naples, but there you go. Um, but Ferrante, certainly people kind of go to Naples thinking they're going to find that Naples, which is a very kind of authentically that might lead us to our one of our later questions, authentic Italian experience. So it's become this huge tourist destination. I think a lot of money has come in that way. Uh, the city's been kind of cleaned up um, for tourists and has made and I think that it's a much easier city to visit than it was 20, 30 years ago, much more at peace with um, with with tourism and and that kind of and also other kinds of e- economic, change I think have been really interesting um, over the last 10-15 years, even cycle lanes. Well, Brian, that's Naples. A couple of teasers there for Kilometre Zero that we're going to work on tomorrow live in the city. Of course, football fever in Naples at the moment because the football team has just won Los Scudetto. Lots going on in Naples and we are going to be in the thick of it. We're going to be in the right in the guts of Naples tomorrow, aren't we? And we will report back in a Kilometre Zero and in the episode tomorrow. But what about the stage itself? Tell us about that. What do we got in store? <clears throat> we have a fantastic stage in store, stage six tomorrow. Napoli to Napoli. It's not Naples, it's Napoli. 162 kilometers, fairly lumpy stage, especially at the start. And it features some of the most iconic sites of this big, brawling Italian, southern Italian city. Including an initial route around the eastern side of the Vesuvio volcano, which is, I think, sort of one of the most iconic sites of Naples. And it, it's a very active volcano, and it's a very dangerous place in the world, because all the people living around it, it could could go off anywhere any, at any time let's not hope tomorrow we passed San Marzano which is famous for tomatoes exactly Pompeii the Roman gates of Herculanum and then onwards towards the scenic roads of the Amalfi and Positano coastline but before the riders they have to climb the, the category 2 climb the Valle Cori Chunzi that you mentioned earlier uh, and and they're going the same way incidentally as they did in 1997 so look out for that descent look out for cats on the descent 
And the last climb uh, is the Picco Sant'Angelo. And uh, actually, uh, if you look closely tomorrow, you'll see they ride, they'll probably ride past the very famous um, San Pietro Hotel, which is one of the iconic hotels on the, uh, on that, the, on the Sorrento Peninsula. So once they're done with that and they pass Sorrento, which, and uh, I feel like this, the cycling podcast has become one big corrections corner of where things actually stem from. But it is, for me at least, the spiritual home of Limoncello. Then the stage returns towards... Paging Alberto Grandi yeah. as we speak. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, so the stage returns towards Naples via the coast and the western side of Vesuvio. The run into the finish should be fairly straightforward. Having said that, we saw today it doesn't take much for panic to arise. There are actually a few hard corners in the last three kilometers, but after the Flamme Rouge, fingers crossed, it should be a fairly straightforward deal and, and either sprint to the line or a group sprint in, uh, in a breakaway. We'll see. Brian, well, you say it's going to be a break. I mean, what do you think? What's your best guess as to what is going to happen tomorrow? I think it's a lot is down to how those, some of those riders who crashed today hmm. are going. Mas Peterson was third today. He is very, very keen to win a stage. If he's okay and, and you know he didn't obviously didn't go down and he's probably very hungry after a stage win, there's a good chance that Trek Segafredo will will take some kind of responsibility. However, and it's a very long time since there's been a successful breakaway in that sense, there's a lot of riders who want to go into a breakaway. And tomorrow, because the the main difficulties are somewhat early on the stage, there'll be a lot of uh, attacking. And I think we'll still, yeah, see who's licking their wounds after after today. It's been a hard Giro just just for the sake of you know people actually trying to get over crashes and, and get back into being competitive. What do we expect from the Magliarosa and his team DSM tomorrow? Do we expect them to try and control things, or is tomorrow uh, uh, no, a dangerous I, day for them? Well, they, I think that. If they lose the jersey tomorrow, there's still been a it's still been a good run for them with, with with two days. But I think the level of difficulty on the stage should be should be okay for them. Having said that, I don't think they want to control all day. I don't think they're strong enough to do that. So maybe they'll as they did today. Also, they'll chip in a few riders to you know the teams who want to keep things together. If it's if it's as rainy tomorrow as it is today, it's going to be super dangerous. And sometimes just the thought of it being dangerous makes it dangerous in itself because the riders are nervous positioning all the all the DSs are telling the riders to get to the front so sometimes it, it you know it, this, and there's no way around it but it often it, it can cause crashes that there is an imminent risk for crashes so that's that's unfortunately that's the mechanism of, of Grand Tour racing when every day is a GC day on, on even semi-difficult stages Brian we're going to head off to Cava dei Tirreni. We are going to sympathize with our Belgian colleagues who might have a long night in store. We were hoping that we might be joined by Renard Schotter, our friend from Sportser, this evening. We're just sitting outside the press room at a bar and we thought we'd see Renard scurrying back to the press room to file his stories. Well, and Renard is what uh, Chiro was to Vincenzo Nibali. Yes. So wherever, exactly. wherever Remco goes, Renard goes. Exactly. So Renard might be at the hospital right now. Um, some of the Belgians, we talked about this Belgian invasion of our colleagues at the Giro d'Italia this year because of Remco. And there, was, there, was, there were murmurs among them this afternoon that they were going to try and track down the dog, the, the, the offending dog. Oh, God. Um, it's a long journey back to wherever it was. It's a, a relatively long journey. I mean, um, just in the, the same, start. <laughs> Yeah, in the same way that the poor, the um, Puffy. lamented, much lamented and uh, mourned 
Puffy was tracked down years later. Um, I don't know if any of them are going to do that, but nothing really would surprise me. Their appetite for Remco stories, Remco news knows no bounds. Well, they also know that you know, with, with if Remco, if Remco goes back to Belgium, so home. do they. They're, they're on the first flight. Yeah. So, Brian, um, we're out of here as well. We're going to head off to our hotel, and we'll I'll stay regardless. And we will stay. We'll be here to the bitter, bitter end. Um, Brian, buonasera to all the listeners. Buonasera. We'll see you all tomorrow. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burnett.